kind of faith that is accepted by most young people today, what do you think you'd say? If you were to think about the, the quality and the quantity of faith that, that is generally accepted by most young Americans, how would you describe it? What would you say? Would you, know, would you kind of throw people in a box and say, well, I think most young Americans are Christians? Or, or would you maybe say that you think most young Americans today kind of don't even have time or, or reason to think about things of faith? Or would you say that most young Americans just kind of do whatever they want to do? A team of researchers, researchers from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill set out to answer that question several years ago. And, and, and they did this huge, expansive study, which they, they published into a book, and um, trying to understand what the average young person believes and why. And um, so they interviewed thousands and thousands of teenagers. They did interviews. They did surveys. They did all this research. And they were able to find that the, the way that it seemed right and acceptable to the average American teenager um, is, is kind of a five-fold creed that they put together. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered human life and who watches over the earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair, as is seen in the Bible and all world religions. Number three, the central goal of human life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in your life, and He only needs to be involved when you need His help to resolve some kind of a problem or an issue that you're having. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. One commentator, Jean Edward Veith, was surveying the city. He wrote that even these secular researchers, when they were kind of uh, compiling all this data, they saw that there was a marked difference between these, these kind of five creeds and historic Christianity, with no place for sin, judgment, salvation, or Christ. Instead, most teenagers believe... Wow, they really do believe. Um, <laughs> Most teenagers believe in a combination of works, righteousness, religion as a psychological well-being, and a distant, non-interfering God, or to use their technical term, moralistic, therapeutic deism. How's that for a mouthful? Next time someone says, what does the average American teenager believe? Say, moralistic, therapeutic deism. And they'll think you're smart. <laughs> you know, and what does that mean, moralistic? It is to say that the average young American believes that morals and ethics are good in and of themselves. But they really don't want to get into what those morals and ethics are or where they come from. That, um, the, the purpose of God and our purpose in life is, um, is to feel good about ourselves. That kind of God is in the business of validating us and making us feel good about who we are and about the actions that we want to take in life. And, and deism, that is, that God created the earth, but that now for the most part he's, really, he's far removed. Like we're over here, God's over there, and that we only need to have anything to do with him when we want to go to him and pop a coin in the vending machine and get something back. That, sadly, that is the way that they seem to feel the average young American believes. I like to call it a teddy bear theology. You know, because it, it's kind of cute and it's cuddly, and you know, it doesn't, it's not offensive for the most part. You notice how they kind of did like this lowest common denominator and said, well, every world religion believes that we should be nice and good and fair. So, so you know, it's kind of cute. It's not demanding. It doesn't place any rules or obligations or kind of code of conduct upon the worshiper. So, you know, it, it doesn't cost you much. And um, in the end, what does it offer? You know, this is what Solomon is talking about here in our verse in Proverbs in 14.12. He is kind of doing something very similar to what these researchers did. He is surveying the way that seems right to the average person 
in his day and age. Um, as we see in Proverbs 14:12, we see Solomon looking out at what's before him, even as these researchers did. And he says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. You know, it's kind of it's kind of a verse that seems especially important to Solomon because several times in Proverbs this very same verse comes up. As you read through the book, as some of you perhaps have been doing with Pastor Jeremy, you see several times verbatim, word for word, this verse comes up as if Solomon's kind of like trying to like hang up a big pink neon sign that's you know blinking and say, "Hey, focus in on this verse." Um, he's trying to say that there's a way, a belief, a faith, a lifestyle that people live. And, and, it, and it seems, there's a way, that way that seems right to men and women. It's accepted. It's approved of. It feels good. Maybe it seems like it pays off in this life. It's praised. It's thought well of. But, in the end, it leads to death. And he kind of throws in that but as if we may not even, you know, we need to really be jarred and struck because of our own eyes in this life. We may not see the logical conclusion of that way. And so as we go through the verse this morning, I think um, there's three things I'd like to sit on. Number one, how God wants to speak to us through this verse to shape our worldview. Number two, how God is trying to inform us about what our walk with Christ should look like if we're going His way. And number three, He's trying to give us a jarring and a stirring eschatological reminder. Our worldview. You know, everybody's got a worldview whether they realize it or not. You know, our worldview is basically, it's kind of like this glasses or this grid with which you look. And it informs how you view the world, how you view yourself, and your place in the world. You know, it, it, your worldview would kind of inform, you know, whether or not you would, you would cheat on your wife or whether or not you'd be faithful. It would inform how, you know, you would do in school and why. It would inform your ethics and your concepts of right and wrong, your idea about whether or not there is a God. Any number of things all kind of boil down to someone's worldview. And as the goal as a Christian is to try to develop a worldview that is shaped on, based on Christ and His Word rather than ourselves. You know, and as we, as we look at this, we see that this verse addresses our worldview. It's one thing for us to say that, yes, we are regenerated followers of Christ and we worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as He's revealed in the Scriptures. But eventually, if we live here in 21st century America especially, we have to make a statement about what we believe about the people that believe other things. You know, because, it, again, if you're here in 21st century America, you've got, you know, the neighbor with the nice grass who's a Mormon, and you've got, you know, the cousin in Detroit who just converted to Islam, and you've got that, you know, person that you go to school with who says that they're really spiritual, but they don't believe in organized religion. And eventually we need to kind of come to a conclusion about what we think of these beliefs or faith systems in relation to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, to the God that we worship. Is, is God kind of, um, you know, as the Greeks had their gods, is He one option among many? Is, is He some kind of first among equals where He's kind of the toughest guy in the lot, but, but, but he, He's one of several, even though He's the best? Or is He the one and only true God? This is an important question because it influences how we look at, how we view our neighbors who are going down a different way. It influences how we worship God. How unique is he? What, how much praise does he really deserve? We see the students in the survey, they saw a great commonality in the, wor in the world of religions, that they kind of want to blur and blind us to the distinctions and kind of as, make it as if, well, 
Well, they're all saying the same thing. And we need to ask ourselves, what is more important? Is faith in and of itself, as I think these students would say, is faith in and of itself what is important? That just kind of, as long as you have faith in something, you're in good shape. Or is faith only as valuable as the object that that, of that faith? Is faith, irrespective of truth, worthless? Is faith only as good as what it is placed in? Is it only worth something if it is placed in the truth? Notice here that Solomon says there is a way. Not many ways, not a couple ways. There is a way. I mean, it's really rather remarkable when you think about it. Solomon is coming from a culture um, like ours, in a sense, where he would be very familiar with other religions. I mean, you know, he would be familiar with the cult of Molech and with the Baals and the Ashtoreths. The, the Bible informs us that Solomon had, had hundreds of wives, you know, and, and he developed these relationships to kind of, you know, as, as partnerships or treaties with foreign countries. So he might have the wife from Egypt, and he might have the wife from Persia, and, you know, the, the wife from um, the Hittites, any ancient people group, and probably, prob- probably Solomon had a wife from them. And each one of those wives probably brought her own gods and her own faith system. We see that in the scriptures. So Solomon would have been familiar with hundreds of beliefs and faith systems. Yet here he speaks to us and he says, there is a way that seems right to man. And because he says it leads to death, I find myself pretty curious about what that way is. I don't want to get it wrong. I want to make sure I know exactly what he's talking about. And it's with that, at that moment, with that question in mind, that God wants to speak to us and shape our worldview. You know, when we, have a, when we have a question like this, the best way to handle it is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. I could, I could walk away in my closet and I could ponder for a few minutes alone and then, and then come in and pontificate. But it's better for us to let God speak to us through His Word when we have a question on, well, what is this way that Solomon is talking of? It says in Isaiah 45:19, I, the Lord speak the truth. I declare what is right. God is saying that truth does in fact exist. There is such a thing as objective truth. It does exist. It is not culturally conditioned. It is not made up by human beings. That truth exists. That it is knowable because God reveals it to us. We can know truth because God tells us what truth is. And therefore, by definition, anything that is contrary to what God says is false. It says in Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But narrow is the gate and small is the road that leads to life, and few find it. Jesus, again, familiar with all the different faith options there are, boils it all down to two. Isn't that remarkable? I, we, we often think of, again, I think the world around us and faith seems like kind of a, like an interstate highway system that you've got all these roads going in different directions and all these different paths, all these different ways that someone could travel. And yet as we're puzzling over the A way that Solomon is talking of, we see Jesus boil it down to two. One big broad way that goes that way, one narrow way that goes that way. The ends and the destinations are completely different. Regardless of how many options there are, there are two ways. And in John 14:6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
So now he builds on that and he says, yes, there is the A way. There, well, there are these two ways. The way that leads to destruction and the way that leads to life. And if you want to go to life, you've got to come through me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He's the embodiment of it. You know, many of us, I think, um, we, we run the risk in our culture, perhaps like these students again, that we think of spirituality like Thanksgiving dinner. You know, like, I could go to Thanksgiving dinner and I could get, get, grab myself some turkey and some mashed potatoes and, and you could come on over and, I don't know, maybe you'd have yams, something weird, yams. And, um, and we could walk away, have something completely different, and yet we, you, you'd, someone could say, well, even though everything we ate was different, we still had the same thing. And, it, you know, and around us, there's this kind of spiritual smorgasbord in our culture today, very much like in Solomon's, where, where we want to pick and choose and what we want to believe, and people see all the different faith options, and it's inundating, and it's a temptation to kind of blur the distinctives, to blur the distinctions with that in mind. We're reminded by Douglas Scruthius, for every theological yes, there are a million no's. What is true excludes all that opposes it. When Solomon is talking about this way, he's talking about it in a culture that is like ours, where there seem like there are many ways, and he's saying, you know what, no, there's really two. There is really two ways. They go in two opposite directions, and they have two opposite conclusions. And you know, this is something that, you know, as Christians, we don't affirm, you know, out of pride, out of arrogance, even though I think most of the world thinks we often do. We don't affirm it to kind of do a, a spiritual chest slap or to make ourselves feel better. Because the fact of the matter is, we didn't create the road any more than we created dirt. You know, we didn't invent it. We didn't create it. We didn't even reveal it. All we are doing is responding to the truth of God as He reveals it and speaks it. And it's the truth that however antagonistic and exclusionary must be affirmed because, again, it leads us to greater praise of our Lord and King. Because there is a uniqueness to our faith. We do not worship a first among equals. We worship a God who says, I am the one and only. I am the way. I am the life. I am worthy of all of your praise. You know, a God that would kind of just be a God who is, you know, one of 15, that doesn't get me feeling like I need to get down on my knees and give Him everything. Because you know what? I'll find someone who demands less. But a God who is the one and only beckons our everything. It's that that beckons us towards the evangelization of the lost, that the gospel would go to every tongue, tribe, and nation, because there is one way, one truth, and one life, and we want to see people on that narrow road. And thus theology leads to doxology, and we say with Paul, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As we look at, you know, as, as we let our worldview be shaped and we see Solomon begin talking about these two roads, it, it should jump out to us that he says that, that that broad road, that way that we would do well to avoid, seems right to men and women. It seems right. Um, so right again that he has to throw in this but as if in this life it may seem so right that we would never notice it's wrong of ourselves. And here again we see this contrast that if that, if that broad way seems right, then perhaps the way of Christ, perhaps that narrow way in this world, according to the world, would seem so very wrong. 
And it's here we have to pause and we have to, we have to you know, get from him what he's saying. You know, what seems right in this world? I think what those students said, that works righteousness is what seems right. Even as you survey many of the world religions, you notice that there is this kind of un- theological underpinning that all of our life is, is a matter of trying to do good. And that we have these scales before us. You know, and, and, and all we're trying to do is put more good rocks on the side than the side that has the bad rocks. So that one day, if hopefully the good side outweighs the bad, we'll get before the pearly gates, Peter will say, okay, you're in, and, and we'll be all set. That's the way that seems right in our culture today that values free will and freedom that has an overly optimistic sense of our, our own um, morality and ability to please God. Works righteousness is what's um, validated and what is seen as right. You know, we live in a, a world where it has you know, this ultimate sense of tolerance and what seems right is to say, as these students did, well, just be good and regardless of where you attend church, regardless of what you believe, regardless of how that affects your life, you'll go into heaven. Irrespective of how those religions or belief systems disagree, whether or not they're all, you know, have the same histor- histor- historical, historical veracity, that's what, that's what seems right. Yet from first to last, the way of Christ is foolishness in the eyes of the world, even as the way of the world seems right. Open with me to 1 Corinthians, if you will. Kind of keep your finger in Proverbs if you want. Go with 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here we see Paul describing how the world looks at, looks at Christians and looks at how we get, get to be saved. And he's kind of comparing this to wisdom versus foolishness. It says in chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Even in the matters of salvation, we see the Scriptures revealing that the way that would seem right to us in and of ourselves is the opposite of the way that God would call wise of that right way. For we could never say that it would, be, it would seem right in the eyes of a world when we went to talk about sin, to talk about judgment, to talk about human beings' inability to atone for ourselves and the need to have a Savior who would pay that penalty for us because of ourselves we are unable to. So in both a salvific sense, the way of Christ is foolishness to the world, as it is in the way of, of, of just Christian living. I mean, where, when would anyone in the world say that it seems right for you to sacrificially give of your possessions unless it would benefit you on your tax return? I mean, when? You know, Paul, um, in this world, what is, what's validated? What's seen as good in this world? Freedom. The ability to do whatever you want, 
whenever you want, however you want. The ability to advance yourself regardless of the cost. The ability to be unfettered, unhindered, not tied down in any way. And how does that square with submit to one each other out of reverence for Christ? Where, where, does the, where would the world and when would the world validate Jesus saying, don't only look out to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In fact, put others first before yourself. That's, that's not a message we find on this little, this little five-point creed. It speaks about our happiness being the highest moral goal. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. That is that our dreams, our desires, our aspirations, our education, our accomplishments are all to be nailed to the cross of Christ along with our sins. That instead of living for, for ourselves, which is the way that seems right, we would be living for God, that everything would be sacrificed at his feet. That is the way of Christ. That is the way that seems right in the eyes of God. And so as we see this contrast between these two, between the way that seems right to this world and the way that seems right in the eyes of God, it almost offers us an opportunity to step back and to test our own faith, as the Scriptures say. Imagine, if you will, that you, know, you, had, you had God over here and you had the world over, you know, the world over here. The question is, if they were to look at your life, who would be more apt to say the way that you are living seems right in their eyes? Would, would God himself look at your life and say the way you are living is right in my sight or the world? Because there's going to be a yes and there's going to be a no. They're not each going to say the same thing. Who is going to say yes? So if you're a teenager, if you're a teenager, would God look at you and would God say, I see the way that you try to honor me. I see those opportunities you've had to cheat on exams you know, in order to get yourself a better grade. And the way you have not done that even though it cost you your grade point average. I see the way that you are the one that goes and loves and encourages that student that everybody else makes fun of, regardless of the cost. Or would God say, I see the way that you are constantly full of lying, gossip, and bitterness, the way you take every opportunity to make yourself look better at someone else's expense, the way you never seek me. And would the world then say, yeah, you're our guy. Or, you know, if you're a parent, would, you know, the world look at you and say, we see the way that, you know, you put your child's opportunities as the most important thing in their life. Key with most. We see how you bend over backwards to give them every opportunity for extracurricular activities, every opportunity when it pertains to a college, and that that is clearly the most important thing for you that your child can ever attain is advancement and opportunity. Or would God look at you and say, I see the way in which the most important priority for you with your children is that they would come to know me. And how you, you, you base every decision around making a clear and, and level road through which they can come to a saving and abiding faith and trust in my name. And you consistently strive to train them up in righteousness, even as I tell you. You know, if, if you're working in the marketplace, would the world look at you and say, we see the way that you constantly strive to advance yourself, even if it means throwing someone else under the bus. 
we see the way in which you continually try to build up more and more things so that you can be happy and feel better about yourself and the way you, you can use your gifts for your own glory? Or would God look at you and say that you are living right because I see the way you use your time, your treasure, and your talents to advance my kingdom? I see you living right because when you go into that corporate office every day, you know that you're serving me and not some CEO. And you're striving to be a witness and to honor me even at your job. Who would say you're living right in my sight? You know, it's rather striking that as we look in the the Gospels, the, the first and the last words from Jesus to Peter were exactly the same. If you look in um, Matthew and you look in John, two words, they're exactly the same to Peter. First and last thing Jesus said to him, he said, follow me. Don't follow yourself. Don't follow the world. Follow me. The Jesus who said, not my will, but your will be done, Father. The Jesus who said, if you want to be a follower of Christ, there is going to be suffering, there is going to be difficulty, it's not going to be a cakewalk says, follow me. The Jesus who says that there are two options, there there are two roads, says, follow me. That's his message to us this morning. And so even even as Solomon speaks to us about this way, and as he talks about this way that um, that we don't want to go on, is thought well of in the eyes of the world, he kind of does this ending, this but in the end that leads to death, to draw our attention. To, to really, I think, make us wake up and realize that we're not talking about a matter of personal preference, that we're not you know, talking about some kind of faith conversation that can be had easily and idly over a latte. We're talking about a matter of life and death. Eschatology is just a fancy way for saying about the end. seems to qualify since we're speaking of death. There are two paths. One leads to life, but the other leads to death. And that but functions as a pronouncement and a promise. It's a pronouncement to those who are going that way, that though that way may seem good, it may seem pleasing, it may seem like it's getting them something and somewhere in this life, it will not end up in the place they want to be. There will be a definite judgment and an end. And it's a promise to those of us who are trying to go down that narrow way. Those of us who are carrying our cross, who are carrying our burden, who are struggling to live a holy life for Christ. And who look out around us at people who believe and do different things and say, man, they seem like they got it easy. Man, I wish I was that person. They seem like they're having a much better time than I'm having. Think what I could do. If I was them, it is an encouragement, it is a promise to persevere, that it is not in vain, that the way of Christ may be difficult, but it is worth living for, it is the right way. It functions as a kind of uh, memento mori. You know, in the ancient world, um, in Rome, Roman, say Roman general would come in, he'd flush off some great military victory, and, um, and throngs in the capital city would go before him to greet him. You know, football stadiums worth of people throwing flowers, chanting his name, bowing down on their knees as he entered in. And, he, and he's going to get this whole wagon train behind him of, you know, um, of gold, of treasure, of slaves, of, you know, all the, all the things, you know, celebrating his great victory. And oftentimes Roman generals, when they had a great military victory, they became the next emperor. So this, this was a good moment. Imagine that. Imagine 
walking into Foxborough and having everybody shout your name. I think that would feel pretty good. And, and yet, the one thing that's ironic is right there, that right behind him, almost touching his skin, the person who would always be in the chariot with him was a slave. And the slave was meant to remind him that though right now he was on the height, though right now he was as high as you could go, he was on top of the world, in an instant, his destiny could change. In an instant, he could be that slave, the roles could be reversed. You see the same idea through um, medieval and then Puritan art. Um, as you, you'll see these pictures, maybe you've seen them if you read art magazines or anything, where you'll see some great Puritan guy like John Edwards or, or John Owen, and you'll see like a portrait of them, and there'll be like a skull under their hand. Or, or somewhere in the picture there'll be some kind of a skull. And the reason that was there was as a reminder that every time the looker would see it, every time the onlooker would see it, they would be forced to focus on their own mortality, on their own end, on the, on the thought that no matter what they were doing or going through now, there was an end to the way they were living. And it would force them to contemplate which way they were going. I was, um, over the summer, I happened to be in a, uh, an old Puritan church. It was about 300 years old in Connecticut. It was a church that Jonathan Edwards actually attended while he was at Yale. And um, amazingly, the church on, on the left side, it had a candle. The candle was, you know, kind of burned halfway down. On the right side, there was an hourglass, which was not meant to tell preachers that they had a time limit. <laughs> And, and between the two, there was the Word of God. So that any time any person came and they were listening to the Word of God and they were staring at the pulpit, they would be reminded that eventually their candle would burn out. Eventually the last drop of sand would tick down in their hourglass and the way that they were walking would be over. And it, what happened to them, their eternal destiny, could be based on how they responded to the revealed Word of God that was between the two. It would force them to focus on this end. The greatest um, attack of the enemy in America, I am convinced, is to keep us busy and distracted and unwilling or unable to focus on eternal things. And in this verse, that's exactly what Solomon is trying to get us to do. There is a way that seems right. Sometimes we start walking on it just out of habit or out of association or because we like it. But... In the end, it leads to death. Keep your eyes focused and fixed on the end. There are many ways to live in this life. There are many paths we see around us. Jesus says that there are only two, and there is only one that leads to life. Let's make sure we're on it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you that indeed... You do make a way. We thank You that You reveal the truth, that You do not leave us quivering or quaking about who You are or how we can receive Your best for us in this life and in the life to come, that You make it abundantly clear through the message of the Gospel. Heavenly Father, we just thank You that You do what we are unable to do in redeeming a people for Yourself. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would give us a bold encouragement through Your Spirit this morning to joyfully walk the way of Christ, to, be, to, to um, examine ourselves and test ourselves and see, Lord, who's, um, who, in whose eyes are we living rightly. Pray that you'd move among us as a church, God, and help us, Lord, to live in a way that pleases you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'd like to close this morning with a song.